So the reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 59, if you want to pick up the Pew Bible, and you'll find it on page 747. That's Isaiah chapter 59, page 747, and starting to read at the second half of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. And then we continue the reading from Isaiah chapter 63, a couple of pages on, page 751, Isaiah 63. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you've spoken to us through your word, through this prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And we pray now that you would give us humble hearts to hear and to receive what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. Um, for those who I don't know, and there's some faces I don't recognise, which is wonderful. My name's Steve, and I'm the vicar um, from St. Catherine's down the road um, in Houghton on the Hill. And it's, uh, it's really lovely to be with you um, this morning. Um, a question for you just to think about as we start. When you think about Jesus, whether you, you know him, whether you're walking with him, or maybe you, you don't yet, what pops into your head? What words 
pop into your head when you think about Jesus? What words would you use to describe him? Let's have a think. I'm going to take a punt, and I might be wrong on this, um, that we thought of words like kind and loving and gentle and meek and mild. Maybe you picture Jesus with his long flowing blonde hair and immaculate beard holding his hands out like this. Um, all right descriptions of Jesus apart from that last one. Um, but another punt I'm going to take um, is that I'm not sure we would think of Jesus as a warrior, as unpredictable, an image of his clothes being stained in blood. Hands up if you thought of that. Oh, you can go. You're all right. <laughs> ah, excellent. Well, Dorothy Sayers, who was um, a, a poet, a crime writer uh, in the 18th and 19th century, a very clever lady, mates with the likes of C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot, um, she said this, if you get the quote on the screen, um, the people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, so a reference to Jesus, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. There you go. And, and I would incline to agree with Dorothy Sayers that we've majored on aspects of Jesus and have neglected other characteristics of him. Or maybe we don't like to even think of him um, in that way. His power and his rawness and his majesty, and his might. You remember when Jesus calms the storm in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4? And uh, we're told that when he does that, the disciples who are in the boat, um, it's, it's recorded that they're terrified, and they ask the question, who is this? They are more scared of the one who is in the boat with them than they are the storm that has just died down. Have we, the Church of England, Paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, filing them down so much that he's, li he's little more than a domestic kitten. Well, in this next instalment of Isaiah, I hope we can correct that. Um, we're in this final section now between chapters 56 and 66. And the central chapters um, of this section are 60 and 62, which I think you'll look at um, next week. Um, I like how uh, a guy called David Jackman, who's a, a commentator, a theologian, um, summarizes the whole book of, of, of Isaiah in terms of two cities. Um, in chapter 121, Judah, Jerusalem, is, has become a harlot, has become unfaithful to God, the unfaithful city. But in the very same chapter, a few verses later, there's a promise that this city will be called actually the city of righteousness. A move from the unfaithful to the faithful. And the book of Isaiah really unpacks that story. And, and in chapter 60 to 62, you will see this future faithful city 
a place where the glory of the Lord is there and is shining, where nations flock to this city, where there's a crown of splendor, there's a complete transformation of the people of God. But the question is, how? How does that happen? Well, it's through a person, uh, the Messiah, this figure who's been described already as a, as a stump of Jesse, so he's a king. He's been described as a servant, as a suffering servant. And in these verses, we get another picture of this Messiah. But why these two passages? When Rob sent them through, I was like, why are we preaching these two passages here with a big gap between them? Why are we doing that? Well, when we look um, at the Bible and you're looking at passages, it's good to look at kind of literary techniques that are used by the authors and the editors. Okay? One technique that's often used is something called a chiasm. What on earth is that? But it's a symmetrical pattern that's been deliberately formed in a text to draw out some key points. And if you have a look here, in this part of Isaiah, you're now entering chapter 56 to 66. You can see what I mean. Chapter 56 is all about righteous foreigners. Those welcomed into God's people. At the end of that section, again, it's about righteous foreigners. And you can see there as you go through, let us see where we are, the divine warrior, parallels with the divine warrior in chapter 63. It's like a reverse pattern to draw our attention to something that's going on. Um, just before we get into it, much of Isaiah uh, is rooted in history. Um, you know, you can look at it and go, this is, this is when this happened. You know, Isaiah 36, 37 is when the Assyrians were going to destroy Jerusalem. But this section is slightly different because although there may be details of history, on the whole, it's very future oriented. Um, and I'll put it out there right at the start that this figure we're going to be looking at is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is this Messiah figure. So let's look at three questions this morning to get through these passages. First of all, who is this figure? Second, what does he do? And third, why does he do it? So three questions. Who is he? What does he do? Why does he do it? First of all, who is this? Um, if you look back at page 751, chapter 63, verse 1, um, we can call this person the divine warrior. Um, there's this warrior pictured coming from Edom, which was the capital um, of, uh, sorry, Bosra, which was the capital of Edom, which was south of Jerusalem. And the Edomites um, were kind of the perennial enemies of God's people and over time became representative of God's enemies. And this warrior is pictured as coming from battle in Edom with these blood-stained clothes walking in victory. And the question is, who is this? He responds, the end of verse 1 of chapter 63, it is I, proclaiming victory. Uh, it's much better to translate proclaiming victory as speaking in righteousness. I'm not quite sure why the NIV did that, but um, it is I. It is a reference to the divine. Um, this warrior is God himself. And by saying he speaks in righteousness, it means he's the one who always speaks what is right. Always. You know, we live in an age, don't we, where there's a constant questioning of, is it true? Can we believe them? You know what, I want to say just forget about that and just believe the Lord and what he says. Because he always speaks what is right and true. And so he can say there, with absolute assurance, that the Edoms, world, which we'll see what they represent in a minute, have been defeated for all time. 
And he can say that not only because he speaks what is right, but you see there, he is mighty to save. This person, this divine warrior, will bring about salvation. If you flick back to chapter 59, um, verse 16, you can see there the end of it. Um, He saw there was no one, he was appalled, there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. So who is this? Well, this, this is the divine warrior, and he saves. But what does he do? Well, we've seen he comes to save, but save from what? Um, you know, you've seen right throughout the book of Isaiah, God saving his people from various nations, whether it's the Assyrians who are attacking them, or, or the Babylonians who take them into exile, and then they, they got out of there. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you see other nations being, um, is God's people being saved from other nations? But here, in 59 and 63, who or what is threatening God's people? They still need saving because there's the need for a rescuer. What they need saving from is themselves. It is not the physical Edoms of the world who are keeping God's people from knowing the blessings of God. It's their own rebelliousness. And so talk of enemies in this chapters are getting to the root of the problem, the greatest of all enemies. 59 verse 18 says, according to what they have done. You back up in chapter 59 verse 12, for our offenses are many in your sight. It's not the physical enemies, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians who are the real enemies. It's the sin that they represent that needs to be beaten. And it's the sin that is the problem. It's the problem of every human heart that stops us, God's people, living a life for the Lord. There's a story about a chap called G.K. Chesterton. You may well have heard this. He's a philosopher and a a writer in the 19th century. And the story goes that a newspaper posed this question one day, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back saying, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World?, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It's hard to verify whether he actually said that, but it, it's, you know, it's in line with other things he says. But the point remains, the problem with the world is you and I, our sin. And it wrecks our relationship with God and it spoils our relationship with one another. Um, Ignatius, who is a very old Christian writer, said this about sin, that it is being unwilling to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And isn't that the story of Isaiah? A constant rebelling against God, doubting that what he wants for them is their very best. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You don't really know what's best, God, for me. But it's that attitude that stops us and stops God's people from knowing him fully. And so that sin, it needs to be defeated. And it's this divine warrior's job to do it. And so in chapter 63, verse 1, we see this warrior robed in splendor, in this robe stained crimson, red. When someone sees this warrior, they say, hey, have you been, um, have you been treading grapes? Have you been making a good Shiraz or Pinot or whatever it might be? And um, verse 3 says, well, yeah, I have been treading the wine press, but not literally. It's used as an image to describe what this warrior has really done. He has crushed God's enemies. He has crushed sin. 
There is here judgment and victory over sin and evil. And it's an ultimate one. And that is a good thing. A few weeks ago, I was in Rwanda and um, went to the genocide memorial, um, which commemorates and actually is, is a site, a resting place for lots of those who were, um, were butchered to death. 850,000. And that was pure evil. And for a lot of those victims, they will never get justice. It got away. They won't. There will be justice and judgment against all that is evil. But this victory that we're reading about is not some kind of heavenly tyrant who's just gone crazy in a fit of rage. The reason he's done this, if you look at 63 verse 4, is to redeem. To break for all of humanity the power of sin and evil. It's the work of this divine warrior Jesus that makes it possible for you and for I and God's people to be and do what God commands for us. He destroys all that prevents God's people from realizing all he has promised for them. And his work produces this whole life transformation because he has crushed everything that was stopping us live our lives for God and being the people that we are always supposed to be. That's what he does. But why does he do it? Two reasons. First, very simply, because there is no one else who can. Flip back to chapter 59, uh, verse 12 to 15, you can... You can see, for our offenses are many in your sight. Our sins testify against us. The Lord, verse 15b, looked and was displeased that there was no justice. The Lord looks and sees there's no justice because there's no one who is able to do that. And God cares. He cares about this as he looks. 63 verse 5. Sorry, you're doing a lot of flicking around, aren't you? Um, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. Humanity cannot get out of the mess that we are in by just trying harder. We cannot repair our broken relationship with God on our own. On our own, we're unable to live our life for the Lord. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Article 10 of the 39 Articles, one of the founding doctrinal statements of the Church of England, all bishops and clergy swear an oath to uphold, says this. I'll just read the first bit. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. We cannot get out of this mess alone. I've never been in quicksand. I don't know if anyone here has been in quicksand and Survive to tell the tale, but I'm assuming if you get in, you need someone to pull you out. Well, that's where we're at. So he does this because there is no one else who can, but the second reason he does this is truly glorious and breathtaking. Look at chapter 59, verse 21. Why does this divine warrior rage against sin? Is it because he just wants to destroy whatever's at odds with him? Or is it just to redeem his people from the power of sin? Well, it's neither. This divine warrior does this work for you so that his spirit may take up residence in you. The divine warrior wants to make 
unclean, rebellious Israel clean. But is that the end? Well, no. The Spirit of God takes up residence to make you clean, but also so that the church, God's people, can be God's servants in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. You are free from a life focused on yourself, which quite frankly is exhausting. But you are rescued in order to go tell the world how amazing your salvation is. We are rescued in order to reveal God to a watching world. What a purpose. You have been given by the Holy Spirit this purpose, this ability to live for the Lord, and you've been commissioned to go serve Him in the world. Evangelism is not the work of a few. It is the calling of every single believer. I was desperately thinking of a film um, that I watched that reminded me of this divine warrior. I didn't share this illustration in the 845 because I just reading the room. was not sure many people would have watched it. But has anyone seen The Raid? Wow, I'm clearly not reading the room. Matthew, yes, Matthew, this is for you. Um, you've seen it as well, Joanna. You can put your hand up. You, we have, we have. It, anyway, it's a martial art movie. You might, don't judge me, all right? If you go watch the thing, wowzers. The vicar watches this. Anyway, it's uh, set in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and there's this big apartment block. And um, it's ruled by this, this crime lord. And the blood, it's just dark and horrible with drug dealing and all kinds of stuff going on. And the police go in to kind of take over the, recover it because they can't get anywhere near it. And, you know, they gradually get picked off one by one. There's one guy who's just a total ninja who goes and defeats absolutely everyone called Rama. And he beats this criminal warlord. There should be a picture. And he frees the people who live in the building from the tyranny of this, this horrible evil man. But he emerges from it completely battered and bloodied and bruised because he has done battle and he has won. And is the same with the divine warrior. He has defeated the greatest enemy humanity has ever faced, our sin. He has restored the most important relationship that humanity needs and he has given his people quite possibly the most amazing purpose a human being can be given. And so I hope the next time that you think on Jesus, that you read about him, that you pray to him, that you listen to his voice, that yes, you realize he is mild and gentle and kind, but that he is a divine warrior. I love the part of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe you're familiar with Narnia, you know, the fictional um, kingdom. It's ruled by a lion called Aslan. And uh, this is the part where the, the, the children who've traveled through a wardrobe, sounds crazy, doesn't it, if you haven't watched Narnia, so I'm explaining this out. They've traveled through a wardrobe to this magical world called Narnia. And, and Lucy, one of the little girls, is talking about Aslan, this, this character, to um, these talking beavers. <laughs> Quite trippy, really, isn't it? Um, it is really good. Um, Anyway, Mrs. Beaver says this, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Lucy replies, Then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. 
He's the king, I tell you. That is our divine warrior. That is what he has done for us. Beaten sin, beaten death, so that we can know God fully and go serve him in the world. As I pray, let me invite the band up. Father, we give you great thanks for this picture of Jesus that we're sorry if we've neglected or we find challenging. But I pray that we would know Jesus deeply as this warrior who does battle for us and who has won. And that we'd realize the life he has purchased for us and the life he has called us to. One serving you in this world and making you known. Equip us, we pray, for that role. In Jesus' name, amen.